I'm Eileen Dunn, and at the end of this historic week, this is The God Slot. Abemus Papam. Eminentissimum acreverendissimum dominum, dominum Georgium Marium, Sancte Romani Ecclesi Cardinalem Bergoglio, qui sibi nomen imposuit Franciscum. Fratelli e sorelle, buonasera. Voi sapete che il dovere del conclave era di dare un vescovo a Roma. Sembra che i miei fratelli cardinali sono andati a prenderlo quasi alla fine del mondo, ma siamo qui. The introduction of Pope Francis to the world and the opening words of the new Pope when he told the crowds in St. Peter's Square how the cardinals had to go to the end of the world to find a Bishop of Rome. To discuss this momentous occasion in the life of the Catholic Church, we're joined by a panel of ecclesiological A-listers, Dr. Jim Corkery, SJ, author and authority on Vatican II and the thinking of Joseph Ratzinger. Father Tom McCarthy, OP, is a broadcaster for both RTE and Vatican Radio, Anne Thurston, author and lecturer in theology, and the Abbot of Glen Stoll, Mark Patrick Hedeman. During the programme, we'll also have contributions from a man whose subtlety of thinking, together with the simplicity and depth of his language, have made him a force to be reckoned with within the Catholic Church. Father Timothy Ratcliffe, OP. Well, I first met him in 1999 when he was Archbishop of Buenos Aires. I popped into his office and we had a chat. And I was very impressed by uh, his simplicity, really. His office was extremely simple and bare. Um, He was very friendly, and you had a feeling of a man who disliked any clericalism. He was a simple man of the people. That's what struck me then, uh, and I think that's what we're going to see now. I think he's a man who's acutely conscious of the suffering of the poor, and that's, that's where Christ is crucified. He's crucified on the streets of Buenos Aires and in the slums. That's where uh, Francis grew up. That's the world he knows. And when he became Archbishop, he never left it. So I don't think the, the idea is that we've all got to be terribly gloomy. He's not a gloomy man. But we've got to get into contact with the real suffering of people on our planet. The first impressions of Dominican Timothy Radcliffe. Of course, we have another Dominican here, Father Tom McCarthy, and we'll come to you in a moment, plus a Benedictine. But the week belongs to the Jesuits, Jim Corkery, so we'll come to you first. What were your first impressions on hearing the news? Well, initially I was surprised. He wasn't on the list of names going round. And while he had been prominent, it seems, the last time, I thought he had become a little too old, 76. So I was quite surprised. And then, of course, being a Jesuit, I said, well, now, what will that mean for the Society of Jesus? Will he be very strict on us if we step out of line? Is it like having your mother or father become the teacher? If you misbehave in class, you get wrapped on the knuckles quickly. And then I began to think more broadly of what it would mean in terms of the sort of spirituality he would have and what he would bring to the office from his Jesuit training. He spent 34 years you know, in the Society of Jesus before moving to be an auxiliary bishop in 1992. So that's a long time to have a fairly strong impression left on you. Now, isn't it a case that the Jesuits don't encourage the taking of high office? 
Oh, very much so. I mean, one is not only strongly cautioned against ambitioning it in any form, but we formally refuse when asked initially. Now, if the Pope insists, eventually the general has to give way and the person is allowed to be ordained a bishop. But it is unusual and it's not part of what is sought. So would it have struck Cardinal Bergoglio that maybe he should have refused? Probably not. Um, I mean, he had been at the conclave before, at which he had gotten a number of votes. So I think it probably didn't strike him that way, rather the opposite, that he would have to be obedient. Um, He might have liked to be able to talk to another Jesuit at that point, because we would when big jobs would be in the offing, usually to the superior anyway. Mm -hmm. But of course, he didn't have that luxury. I think he had to say yes. Okay, and and he Thurston. now is the superior. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Everybody else will be answerable to him. Anne Thurston, what were your thoughts when you heard? Well, I have a very amusing story to tell about it. <clears throat> I was out on the evening. Was it Wednesday? Wednesday yes. Evening? And uh, I had asked that someone might send me a text if there was any news. So I opened my phone and my text read... Rose Francis from Argentina. So for this extraordinary moment, I had Argentina and a woman. (laughs) But of course, predictive texting. um, uh, uh, I very quickly realised this was Pope Francis from Argentina. But I enjoyed the moment. I then went home and uh, watched um, as he came out on the balcony. And I have very different responses. I have my immediate response and then of course the considered response a few days later so the immediate response was actually surprise at how he was so I didn't first see yet another um, white haired elderly man which is probably a good thing I don't think we should be too ageist about these things Um, we should allow you know for all sorts of possibilities there I was actually impressed by the first words that he said. Of course, like so many others have noted, that very um, relaxed buonasera and so on. I, what I, it's very, it's very difficult now to to move because everything that has happened since and the thoughts since come in on top of that. But I want to just do justice to those first impressions. What struck me was his naming of himself as bishop. So I thought, this is a good sign. If he is going to see himself as a bishop among bishops, this is a good thing. Um, The other thing that struck me was that he asked first for the prayers of others. And so he received the blessing of the people before he gave one. All of those were very positive. So the initial impression was a positive one. So I want to stay true to that feeling and then, of course, other things came in afterwards, okay. which maybe we'll we come will, back we to in a few moments. Mark Patrick, were you watching uh, as the yes. Pope emerged onto the balcony? <clears throat> yes, I was. I, I thought the the three firsts were impressive. Francis, SJ and South America. And I also had the sneaking feeling that he was probably the most acceptable candidate to the Curia if they couldn't have an Italian. And we'll see in the very near future how that particular battle emerges because I think that's the, the real crux is, is this man going to take on the Curia? I think he's very definitely for the poor and so is everybody else in Christianity. But there are other issues which are very important And I don't know yet what his approach to them 
or what his point of view is. The fact that he ran such a big diocese as Buenos Aires and that he's come into conflict with his own government on occasion seems to augur well, they say, that he will be robust enough to take on the Curia if that's what's needed. Well, it's always interesting to hear what your enemies are saying about you. So if you listen to Cristina Fernandez in Argentina, I think you'll get quite another commentary on, because, you know, she's also pretty robust and she has had the experience almost like uh, one of these Italian movies where you have the mayor and the Don Camillo. You know, there, there's a certain cartoonish quality to that, but we'll see. Father Tom, I know you were in studio and you were translating Pope Francis's words as he emerged out onto that balcony. What were your first impressions? Having spoken to you earlier and, and asked you who would you like to see and you said you'd like an order priest. So Yes, I did. I said that. And I, I, my preference would have been the Capuchin from the United States, or Mali. But there we are. What struck me in the tiny little gestures that we have from Francis in the first couple of days, and that's all we have, they're very tiny hints, but it may be of one who is imaginative as well as being orthodox. I didn't hear the word orthodox or conservative mentioned until he was elected, and then this was being said about him on every programme and in every newspaper. And I hope that being orthodox is not a handicap to anybody. Rather, he knows what he's in. He knows the church he's in, the game he's in, and will be able to play by those rules. But the imagination came across to me, the sense of being able to think very quickly, of being able to link very immediately with a huge crowd in St. Peter's. Initially, when he came to the balcony, he looked shocked. I thought he might have burst into tears. But once he said the Buona Sera, mm. as you mentioned, <coughs> Anne, he touched the people and they responded. And then the wonderful moment of his asking them first to pray that he might be blessed. I thought there was a great sense of communication happening immediately. And I'm hoping that despite the orthodoxy or even because of it, he will be able to take the church forward to enable rethinking of some of its practices in a consultative way. I mean, he's not going to be a diktat from Rome, I hope, but that there will be more consultation within the church about various parts of its practice that could be not just modernised, but actually Christianized. On the night of his election, his biographer, Sergio Rubin, was on the nine o'clock news and he said he's a moderate with a modern vision of the church who didn't show it out of respect for Benedict. Would anyone have any comments on that? Jim? Well, I would hope that he is a moderate, that he's inevitably whoever came out of that conclave, all of whom were appointed either by John Paul II or Joseph Ratzinger, they would be doctrinally in a similar tradition. But is he going to go on a witch hunt about dissent? Is he going to be stressing orthodoxy and doctrine all the time? Or is he going to set a different set of em emphases? Like if Tom is right that he's imaginative, I would hope that, then he'll imagine how to do it in a rather different way. And if he's also pastoral by heart and instinct and feel, then we can imagine really quite a different unfolding of the papacy. Add to that the emerging simplicity He'll be, tripping, uh, he'll be trimming pomp and ceremony, I think, quite a lot. 
I've heard it said that in the invitations to the inaugural mass next Tuesday, these massive inauguration, he says there shouldn't be any invitations sent. It should be an open mass. Everybody's welcome. Um, this business of not stressing hierarchy and distinctions between people, but community, collegiality, as you say, if he's the Bishop of Rome, you're going to need to be working with the other bishops. Imagination makes a huge difference in the expression of Christian faith, and it could make all the difference if he's led by that. Now, that's a point that you brought up as well, that notion of the Bishop of Rome that he emphasised on Wednesday evening, and we'll talk about that a little more in a moment. Let's hear Timothy Radcliffe first. I think the point about stressing that he was the Bishop of Rome is that he wants the Pope to be one of the College of Bishops. You see, there has been an unfortunate tendency over the last three or four hundred years for the Pope to become a sort of super-bishop, transcending and and quite distant from uh, the College of Bishops. So I think what, what he wanted to do was, from the beginning, was stress that um, he is one of the College of Bishops. He's got a unique role. He's the centre of unity. That that you can't get away from. But he doesn't want himself to be sort of floating above them, as it were. It's very interesting. He, he quoted from the balcony words from uh, St Ignatius of Antioch in the 2nd century. The Church of Rome presides in love. And that stresses that it's, it's not just that... Um, He's a bishop, but he's, he's deeply embedded in this local community of Rome, which has always remained faithful. And he stressed presiding in love. So I think he wants, to, he wants to overcome the separation that has sometimes existed between the Pope and the other bishops. Mark Patrick, I see you sharpening your pen there. Would you like to comment on that first? Yes, I think actually symbolism is very important and what people do and the way they do it. And I found his going back to his hotel, paying his bill and meeting all the people who were serving him there. Just at this kind of moment, people forget about anything like that. And yet that's what he was thinking of. But actually, uh, on what Timothy was saying, I think the most significant thing that has happened in the church has been the resignation of Benedict XVI. I think that has demythologized the papacy in a way that no other act for 300 years at least could possibly have done. And it has actually dealt the final blow to patriarchy and to the super pope and all that kind of um, tendency which uh, everybody agrees has been part of the image for a very long time. I mean, actually, when you look at it, there have been extraordinary popes uh, over the last 200 years. They, They were very extraordinary people. But that business of turning it into a superstar and turning it into something which really is above and beyond. I think he has made significant gestures, symbolic gestures, which show that he's going to do something properly uh, about that. Anne? I actually wanted to refer to that same business. I liked that being on his to-do list, going over to collect his own bag, because I very much share this idea that how you do things is just as important as what you say and very often more important. So that was a very important gesture. The other important gesture was getting back into the minibus to go back to 
Casamart or wherever they were, rather than take the papal car. These things actually matter. They might seem matters of style, but they're they're very important. Each of them is making a statement about the kind of Bishop of Rome that he is going to be. Um, to come on to something about imagination and dialogue, I think, of course, the most significant thing would be if different types of conversation were to take place. So that instead of... Of, well, I want to take a step back there. It's naive to imagine that he was going to have a different stance on the traditional um, matters. Anybody who's in that room will share all these views. So to expect reform in those things, I think, is simply unrealistic. It's not going to change. Attitudes towards women, attitude, attitudes towards homosexuality and so on. But what could change significantly would be the types of conversations about these issues. And this would make an enormous difference if one listened to the other point of view with respect. What worries me then, to come to my first major concern, is to have had some glimpse into how he might have dealt with those issues in the past. He would need to change on that because the the hardline attitude that he took, and um, uh, Mark Patrick's already referred to this, when the issue of gay marriage came up, um, really he said some quite shocking things, you know, talking about uh, some expression like the, the father of evil versus the children of God. This is the kind of language we don't need. And so the language needs to change as well as the style. Tom, you wanted to come in there. Yes, just to say that, like Anne we have to be realistic in what we can expect to be um, engaged in by the Pope and by the Vatican at this point. And we would hope that there would be, as, as you say, Anne, some conversations that are meaningful. It seems to me also that I've got to learn um, a certain patience that a lot of things could change in the, in the church, but generally do so very, very slowly. And it could be long after I'm gone that some of the things I would long for in the life of a Christian community at home and worldwide would change. John the Twenty Third, we speak of as one who ignited something that changed. He didn't live long to see it and only lived to see one of the sessions of the Vatican Council. So I'm, I'm trying to teach myself to be patient while at the same time impatient, at least as you say, that the conversations begin and that they open up real conversations that haven't reached their conclusion before they start. Archbishop Dermot Martin the other night compared him to Pope John and said he may surprise us all. I think he might. I think the thing about conversation and the type of conversation is crucial, but it has to do with the way of being church. If the way of being church is top-down and somewhat authoritarian, the conversations can never even happen in any kind of freedom. Whereas we live in an age now, uh, churchy people would say it's a sign of the times, where dialogue is in, because it has to be. There's plurality, diversity on every street corner and at every turn. Now, if it becomes an age where there is dialogue between people who see things differently and that that dialogue reaches into their experience, you know, you don't expect this Pope to come in and change, say, the church's sexual teaching overnight. But if the manner in which that teaching is arrived at, reformulated, uh, rendered contemporary and so on, includes conversation with people who have the experience, 
that can be reflected on, to be part of where the teaching will eventually come out of. You know, nobody's saying anything about draconian changes overnight, but it's a different way altogether. And it's not polemical, like what you described happened in Argentina. It's a public spat between a very strong president and then an equally feisty bishop. And both look bad in the end. So I think he said some things that are quite interesting when he talked about, for example, a self-referential church, Mm -hmm. looking in on itself and so on, would be a very bad thing. But a church that's out there on the streets, he said, is going to encounter some accidents, mistakes, stumbles. But to be out there, to be talking to people, like he was when he was riding the subway and taking the bus and sitting there listening to people talking to him. And baptising the children of unmarried uh, women that some of his priests refused to do. Yes, and kissing the feet of AIDS patients after he had washed them and ceremonies and so on. It seems that when he gets into concrete pastoral situations, what he sees is the person, not the doctrinal irregularity. I'd say that's a good way to begin to think about Mm. doctrine again. Tom, did you want to come back in there? Yes, I was going to say that the contrast for me is between an attitude of fear um, guiding somebody in leadership and an attitude of courage. And if Pope Francis is going to have less time for the trappings and the trimmings, not just of vestments, but of the whole entourage of the Vatican Uh, some people will be disappointed by that because they fear, in my view, they fear that if the trappings are removed, you discover there's not a great deal underneath. There's not a great deal of substance to the whole thing. If you're courageous in your faith, you can allow all those things to go that just don't matter. They are trimmings. And somehow focus and rejoice together with the Diocese of Rome and the World Diocese on the faith that we have received. Is that what he was saying to to his cardinals yesterday in the Sistine Chapel? Certainly, his insistence yesterday seemed to me to be that we need to confess Christ, cross and all. So there are going to be struggles uh, in the dialogue that we um, engage in within our own Christian community and in dialogue with with the society that's continuing to develop around us. And as you say, Jim, the language with which that dialogue um, must take place, the language in which it must take place, has to be a language that each side can understand, or it's not vernacular. We need to move on here. One of the big challenges that's going to confront him is the issue of child sexual abuse. Jim, the last time we had a discussion like this, uh, we were talking about Pope Benedict. You said his heart was in the right place, and though history will probably judge him less harshly than he's judged today, the problem somewhat overwhelmed him. How is this book going to deal with that? Let's hear first from Timothy Radcliffe. I think it has to be absolutely clear that we listen with great attentiveness and seriousness to what has happened to people who have been damaged by sexual abuse. That's where we start. We have to, it's very painful and it's very difficult, but we have to open our ears and our hearts and really be touched by their suffering. The temptation is sometimes to think immediately of ourselves. Oh, what a pity for the church. Our reputation is harmed. But the beginning has to be their suffering. Then we obviously have to make the church the safest place it can be. For, for children in the world. I think there are structural problems. Sometimes I think a lot of bad sex goes with bad power. Um, and I think a clericalist culture where priests saw themselves in any way as superior to the laity 
Um, that colludes with, I think, using people. Uh, and so I think we have to be very um, critical of clericalism. And there is nobody more so than Pope Francis. Father Tom, you worked with Timothy Radcliffe at one point. You were his secretary. Let's start with you then on this one. I know that Timothy has just said what was his policy uh, during his time as Master of the Order and before that as, as provincial in England. That you go first in your consideration to those who have suffered, who have been damaged, who have been very severely wounded, in some cases with wounds that would be almost impossible to heal, in my view. They've been just so deep and so traumatising. Um, I, I remember getting a yellow card from the Vatican after one of my broadcasts when uh, Cardinal Sodano stepped up to a microphone just before the Pope's Christmas, Easter Mass two years ago and wanted to assure His Holiness that a great deal that he was hearing about problems like this was largely media-generated and that the people <coughs> in the square and the people all around the world were with him, with his holiness. <coughs> and all I said on air was, neither Sudano nor I could begin to say anything that would assuage the hurt of those who had been damaged, nor had we heard the last of this crisis. I got two phone calls from the Vatican radio people and was not invited to the next broadcast I was due to do. So that's the kind of limited understanding uh, of the hurt and therefore of the language that needs to be used uh, in dealing with the situation and with people particularly who have been hurt. Well, Jim, from what you've seen and heard of this new Pope, do you think that will change somewhat? I hope so. I mean, my sentiments all go with what Tom has just said. But I think on this matter, no stone leaves to be, needs to be left unturned. And that includes the stone, really, of the Vatican. What were the coagulated attitudes there and the structural and systemic perspectives? Timothy Radcliffe was rattling at them just in his comments a few minutes ago. That has to be looked at, too, because um, it's all part of a, a, a seamless garment, in a way, the system of training, choosing, grooming. Uh, I just mean in the ordinary sense of bringing people up along the clerical ladder. There shouldn't be one. The whole thing needs to be looked at again. Think about human relationships. And I think that that will be very difficult to do. But I think it can't stop at looking at dioceses, now looking at bishops who did the wrong thing or didn't do the right thing. It must also ask, what was the policy in the Vatican? Why was it like that? How did it contribute to the situation being worse? And so on. And I think that is the advantage, though I don't envy him the job, of somebody coming in from outside, like Pope Francis, who has never been in the Vatican, working in any office, and he can say, well, this is how it was. We'll examine it closely, and now this is how it's going to be. And it has to be done always. We could take that thing, you know, that you have from liberation theology about the preferential option for the people on the margins. Well, the victims or people who, through no fault of their own, were shoved aggressively to the margins and held down there. So they're a preferential option now, and therefore this has to be done. That is a situation that has to be further addressed, and I just hope he has the energy. The bottle, I believe, is the word people often use, that he's really firm and that he looks also inside the Vatican for what needs to change there. 
The word I'd like to take up from what Jim was saying is systemic because one of the things that bothers me in most of the comments coming from uh, church leaders about the issue of child sexual abuse is how it's dealt with as an issue on its own. And it can't be. And this is why I think I take your point very strongly. I think that, you know, this idea that once we get rid of the bad apples and it comes through all the time, that the situation will be fine again. It isn't about that. It's about cleaning up a whole system that is really poisoned from um, from the top down. And so whether somebody has the courage to do that, I, so I have no idea what he will do, but I think that's what needs to be done. Mark Patrick. Well, I mean, we've all enjoyed the TV programmes about Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister where any organisation as big as the Catholic Church with 1.2 billion people has a civil service and, you know, Humphrey is telling the the so-called leader, well, that's fine what you think, but this is the way it's going to happen. That is definitely what happens in Rome. And the Curia have circled the wagons and I would say they are disappointed that they don't have an Italian who will understand the language and the culture and that this man now, as far as they're concerned, is a possible puppet for manipulation in this way. And we will see. But it would take a huge person to actually... And dismantle that system and I don't know even what it would mean. I gather that they don't have as many people as the mayor of Birmingham actually for running uh, that part of the world and they're trying to deal with 2 billion, 1.2 billion people. So I would say it's a defective system anyway but how you actually tackle that and what you put in its place I don't know really who could answer that question. So maybe back to collegiality and the whole notion from Vatican II of spreading it out and giving more control to the bishops on the ground. Well, I think Vatican II uh, has to be recognised as a huge battleground between... It was the biggest meeting that probably ever took place on this planet. And there were conservatives and there were liberals in that meeting as there always are and the text was worked out in such a way that it could be recognised by both sides as being their text, their victory. So there's nothing in Vatican II that couldn't be interpreted one way or the other. What we need now is Vatican III and whether that happens in uh, South America along with the World Cup and the Olympics, that would be, I think, a very marvellous move forward. Anyone else like to take that up? We need Vatican III, Jim. Yeah, I often think about that because we need something that gives direction to Vatican II. You know, because what Mark Patrick said is correct. These generous votes that those texts got got the votes because they had lots of compromises built into them. We have had a group in the church since 1985 and before interpreting Vatican II for us in one way. Since the extraordinary synod, the theology of Comunio, uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, then later uh, uh, as um, Pope Benedict, 
and a group of others, and of course many bishops who were appointed according to that theological mindset. So the way of interpreting Vatican II in recent years has been in the hands of the people who have also had power in the church. And I think there is another valid trajectory of interpretation of Vatican II that has been eclipsed since Ranner's talk about the Council in 1979. That was the last word of that kind. And I think it's time to bring in a plurality of interpretations again. If that needs a Vatican III, then it needs a Vatican III. But Vatican II has been interpreted very narrowly, and that is a huge problem. And it was noted way back then by an old conservative, Avery Dulles, later a Jesuit cardinal, when he pointed out that at the extraordinary synod of bishops there were two kinds present at that time. Neo-Augustinians, who felt that the church had kissed the world too much and now needed to pull back into a sacred space, and he called the others humanitarians, people like Cardinal Hume of Westminster, James Malone of Youngstown, Ohio, and he called. He said that their view was the council hadn't been sufficiently implemented. He meant lay involvement, dialogue, relationships, etc. In my opinion, that battle is still on, and um, you know and which we'll side. Continue. You know which side I tend to lean towards. <laughs> I think I do. One more issue we want to address before we sign off here: the liturgy was another big, important issue for Pope Benedict. Will Pope Francis consider it as important as his predecessor did? Here's Timothy again. Uh, I think what we will see is a, a man who, who's turned outwards to the concerns of the world rather than introverted in any way. I, I think the new translation um, is not very good. So, some, in some places it's an improvement and in other places it's just really a bit silly. Um, and, but the real trouble, I think, was that they didn't let the English-speaking bishops have um, their authority. Um, they should have let it happen at the local level. Um, I, I don't think he will be enormously concerned with these intel matters. I think his great love is, is to have a church which will address the great problems of the world. Mark Patrick, I'm going to come to you first on this. Well, <clears throat> I can't express my grief at the translations we have been uh, given as an English translation, which it's not. It's actually believing that English is not a language that we can address God in, that the only language of the church is Latin, and therefore the English that we are submitting ourselves to is a Latin version of English. And this is something up with which we cannot put. (laughs) It's just completely... uh, difficult to explain to anybody and it would take very little to actually change that you know we could get a few of our language experts our poets to do this and it shouldn't be that everybody in the english-speaking world has the same text we all speak english slightly differently but i don't think that anybody's going to do anything about that now because it has been done and because people have just been ridden over roughshod who were trying to um, express their distress. So I don't think this Pope is going to say we're having to have another translation. First of all, I don't think his lang- his language power is as great as John Paul or even as uh, 
Benedict XVI. Uh, so I imagine he, English is not. Do we know? One does he speak language. English? I believe not, or if he does, quite minimally. Um, he gave his first homily in Italian, not Latin, so that suggests that he's, he favours the vernacular. However, in terms of liturgy, if he continues the washing of the feet, that might be the thing that matters most. Tom? That ties in with something I was going to say. First of all, in relation to the translation of the Missal, one of the big issues at the moment is the Spanish translation of the Missal. What about South America? And it's a quite different language there. And up to now, they haven't been allowed that independence of expression. Castellano and Espanol, they will tell you, are quite different languages. But taking up the washing of the feet, in my view, if the quality <coughs> of Francis's preaching during the Mass and before and after in terms of his contact with the people he comes in touch with, believers and not, that may overcome even the difficulty that I have with the actual text of the Mass if the quality of his preaching of the Gospel is strong enough. It somehow overcomes any difficulties there are. Just like the soprano who's a winner, you won't quite mind that the clarinet didn't get everything right a few moments ago. He's not a Dominican Tom. <laughs> that has to be the last word, folks. Thank you indeed for joining us. It's a topic we could talk about all night. We have to leave matters there, but we'll make an extended edition of our programme available on podcast. My thanks to our distinguished panel, Jim Corkery. No doubt going to spend the rest of the weekend partying with your fellow Jesuits. What about the name, very briefly? Uh, a friend of mine who was educated by the Jesuits was disappointed he didn't choose Ignatius. Oh, we're very happy with Francis. And also, he is for everyone. So to choose something just Jesuit, that would have sent the wrong message. Fair point. Tom McCarthy? It'll be the Dominicans' turn next, maybe. And you'll be featuring on commentary on the inauguration mass on Tuesday morning. Mark Patrick Hederman, thank you once again for coming into our programme. And Anne Thurston, it was lovely to have you as part of our panel. Thank you. The inauguration mass will be broadcast live on radio and television on Tuesday morning, beginning at half past eight. And just before we go, the Palestrina Choir and the Orchestra of St. Cecilia, under the direction of Blonet Murphy, will perform the Bach St. John Passion at the Pro Cathedral next Wednesday at 8 o'clock. More information on the website www.ctb.ie But that's our programme for this week. We'll be back next Friday at the same time. Agus Kajishin, Banati Nafela Poirik.